0: Hey folks, Anne here with a little extreme content slash trigger warning before we start the show, which is a recording of the live stream that we did last Sunday. We discussed all of the Daenerys material from A Game of Thrones, including some scenes depicting sexual violence and rape. It's not what the majority of the podcast is about, and I believe that we handled the topic with appropriate care and consideration but I do want to make sure that you're mentally prepared to consider such material before listening, and I wanted to let you know that it's probably not one to play with the kiddos around. Now that said, I am very proud of this presentation and the exploration of Danny's character that it contains. Daenerys Targaryen, though a fictional figure, is something of an icon, and I believe that the ending that the HBO showrunners gave her was basically a disservice to her character. This podcast will be the first of four such podcasts, one for each book that Danny is in, with her not appearing in Feast, that will attempt to set the record straight by reviewing all of her often overlooked character-building and character-revealing moments, and then discussing what kind of ending they might foreshadow. Thanks very much for listening. Let's get started. Hello, why are those the dulcet tones of my cousin's keyboard playing? Yes, they are. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks for the excellent keyboard tracks on what was uh, basically just my little take on the Game of Thrones theme, Little, little funky fresh. Hello, welcome everyone. We are here to talk about Daenerys. I do have my King of Winter horns on because, of course, today is start back day. Uh, last night being the shortest night of the year, winter solstice. Now we're on to getting longer again. We're starting back, if you will, towards the summer solstice. And so I am in horns. And as you can see, I have a Christmas tree. We are in the holiday spirit, guys. Like I said, it's start back day. But the thing is, King of Winter, kind of a stark thing. We're not here to talk about the Starks, no. We're here to talk about our Queen Daenerys. There she is. There's the Funko Pop Daenerys, anyways. As you can see, I have moved and I've set up my shelves again and all my toys, my books, and my things. I got some Transformers up on the shelf, so this is good. This is good. It's been a little turmoil in the past six months, and uh, it's nice to to land again. I am in the Windy City, the cold city of Chicago. Uh, we are here to talk about Daenerys. Indeed we are. And let's just, uh, let's get right to it. Let's get right to it. The whole idea here is that the ending of the TV show was very unsatisfying, particularly the Jon and Danny ending. We're here to talk about the difference between the character of Daenerys Targaryen in the books versus that of what we saw on the show, and in particular, I mean, it's it's really simple. I watched the show ending like a lot of you guys, especially the Danny supporters, the Targaryen faithful, very disappointed. You know, Jon stabbing Danny was disappointing, but really, it's about the uh, it's the Mad Queen turn. The idea that Daenerys, you know, okay, willing to wage war and willing to accept c- civilian casualties, okay, but suddenly. After winning the battle, she does the the mad queen look and turns her dragons on the populace of King's Landing, including her own soldiers. As I always point out, her soldiers were engaged in the city when she turned the dragon fire on the streets of King's Landing. So she's roasting innocent civilians uh, like the children that Arya was seeing, you know, in that scene, as well as potentially her own soldiers. It's a completely insane thing to do. um, And it didn't sit right with any of us. And so what did I do after that ending? You know, I started thinking about Danny, and it made me mad because I, I I feel like I know Daenerys. Daenerys is my favorite character. She's one of the people that I identify with the most, uh, because I am a, a princess at heart with clean fingernails, as my friends jokingly refer to me as. Uh yeah, a little bit of a princess, a little bit picky. Uh in any case, I love Danny. And I'll talk about some of the reasons why I identify with Danny in this stream. But point is, I feel like I know this character. And what I saw uh, at the end of the show just really, uh, yeah, it, 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 was, it was a letdown. It was disappointing. And, and more importantly, it was contrary to everything that I feel like I knew about the character. And so I went back and read over the books. And I saw that that yeah my my feeling I think is justified that the, the, the Danny that we see in the books it's hard to see how she's ending uh, heading towards that end uh, I think there's a few variations on the show ending which could could make sense but those those changes are pretty important uh, and and specifically we're talking about the idea that is is Daenerys someone who will just in a fit of like rage or whatever turn her dragon fire on the innocent populace of King's Landing, and become basically a mass murderer, a butcher. Um, you know, according to Sandor Clegane, all kings are butchers. You know, all knights are butchers. In a sense, that's true. Uh, every war, you know, is is paved with blood. Uh, George likes to think about the idea of is there such thing as a just war, and he, um, you know, discusses that a lot in the books. Uh, but but it's it's different waging war and the casualties that come along with waging war is obviously something different from mowing down innocent people. And even uh, in our own you know, theaters of war, we expect our soldiers to maintain that difference. Even when they're under fire and they're in, in duress in a foreign land and carrying out missions, uh, they're still supposed to remember not to shoot civilians. And if you shoot civilians, it's a war crime. So this is a very clear line. We're, we're gonna talk a lot about violence of various types today. Defensive violence, offensive violence, vengeance, protection, uh, but it's it's definitely it starts with the difference between uh, someone who's willing to engage in war, which Danny clearly is and always has been, and someone who is just like insane and using their dragons to to slaughter people. So that's sort of the backdrop of of where we're going here, as far as you know, digging into the books to see like is is there something we missed. Is Daenerys really, is she a Hitler in the making? And we just didn't, we didn't see it. And honestly, there's been some comments from like D&D and some of the actors about, yeah, you guys should have known. That's what you get for naming your children Khaleesi or Daenerys or whatever. And it's like, that's that's kind of sucks. It, it hurts, it does. And and I think, I think most of you on the stream probably feel like I do. We feel like we know Daenerys and we feel like, you know, what we saw on the show was just a betrayal of her character. I mean, that's, that's to, put it, to put it quite blankly. But we're here to set the record straight. We're here to go dig into a Game of Thrones and highlight uh, her character. So, the, when I talk about character, so this is interesting. You guys know Mythical Astronomy, primarily a symbolism based show. Uh, it's usually what I talk about symbolism, mythology. Uh, I've gotten better at, at we you know connecting that back into the main themes of the book and the character stuff. But I clearly, I like the symbolism and the more abstract stuff. Um, but with Daenerys, what we're going to do is we're going to go through a Game of Thrones and we're going to highlight basically a lot of the stuff that we never talk about. We're not going to talk about her waking dragons in the alchemical wedding bonfire, which I've mentioned in like 50 podcasts. We're not going to talk about uh, well, we are going to talk about her wake, the Dragon Dream, but we're not going to be looking at the symbolism and the stuff that we normally look at. We're going to be looking at a, basically a completely different layer of the story. So it's very exciting for me. And I hope you guys are fired up because we'll be diving into uh, some different, like some, like I said, some different scenes and looking at it with a little bit different lens than we usually do. Five-part series, actually a four-part series because Danny's not in a Feast for Crows. So yes, this will be four episodes today is just a game of Thrones although we'll, we'll be you know we'll mention other things that parallel stuff but yeah we're doing a, we're doing a game of Thrones today. basically think about it like this when the cool thing about reread podcasts that go chapter at a time is that you can really get into the granular detail of everything right um, you can you can stop and talk about each scene and it's 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 like the most zoomed in view that you can take and frequently, in an open discussion, we're taking the very broadest view, talking about you know the entire arc of a character, the way that the themes of the book relate to one another, because we like book reports and themes. What we're going to do today is somewhere in the middle. We're going to go book by book, and that's going to allow us to zoom in a little bit, but not get so lost in the detail of the action that we're not thinking about the sort of overall picture. And I think that um, each book does work cohesively for each character to sort of, you know, Thematically, all the Danny's chapters in the Game of Thrones work together. So I think it's going to be really good to consider all of them at once. And the way that we're going to do this is we are going to go not by chapter, but by idea or by topic, if you will. Worked long and hard on this one. Definitely, like I said, had a ton of fun. And the more I read, the more I felt like, yes, that, you know, they have led us astray. And all right, anyways, going back on my soapbox. But Daenerys is perceptive. That's the first thing we're going to talk about, and I've got I've got basically like some main course topics of her character, and we're going to start with some of the uh, the uh, more casual stuff just as a warm up. But we're going to get into you know the main things that we're going to talk about today are Danny's concept of home and what she wants, and what the idea of being a dragon means to her. But we're going to start with some of the smaller character uh, characteristics of Danny. And the first one will be that Danny is perceptive. This starts with the very first chapter. You guys remember, Danny is contrasted with Viserys. Viserys is eating up all the lies and you know, whatever Illyria is selling and Danny is seeing through it, which is interesting because Danny's only thirteen. And Viserys obviously is, I don't know, 17, 18, something like that. So uh, here's the quote. A gift from the Magister Illyrio, Viserys said, smiling. Her brother was in a high mood tonight. The color will bring out the violet in your eyes. And you shall have gold as well, and jewels of all sorts, Illyrio has promised. Tonight, you must look like a princess. A princess, Danny thought. She had forgotten what that was like. Perhaps she had never really known. Why does he give us so much, she asked. What does he want from us? For nigh on half a year, they had lived in the Magister's house, eating his food, pampered by his servants, Danny was 13, old enough to know that such gifts seldom come without their price, here in the free city of Pentos. Illyrio is no fool, Viserys said. He was a gaunt young man with nervous hands and a feverish look in his pale lilac eyes. The magister knows that I will not forget my friends when I come into my throne. So, again, I, there's a lot of little passages like this, but you guys probably remember this. Like, It's a pretty strong contrast. Right from the beginning... Viserys series is just smoking whatever Illyrio is giving him. And, uh, and Danny is not. Uh, three minutes, by the way, until West Coast 420. And so uh, there's more of the same later in the chapter. It says Danny had no agents, no way of knowing what anyone was doing or thinking across the narrow sea. But she mistrusted Illyrio's sweet words as she mistrusted everything about Illyrio. Her brother was nodding eagerly, however. And Viserys series is, I mean, he's a fool, but he has been around. So it really does say something that that Danny, already at this age, is able to see through these illusions that that Viserys is not. Um, So Danny's being sold basically into marital slavery. That's, you know, you could call it, that's probably the best term for it with Drogo. And she's not fooled. So they dressed her in the wisps that Magister Illyrio had sent up and the gown, a deep plum silk to bring out the violet in her eyes. The girl slid the gilded sandals onto her feet while the old woman fixed the tiara in her hair and slid golden bracelets crusted with amethyst around her wrists. So this is a lot of a lot of finery here. I mean, this is the richest stuff that Danny's ever had. And it continues, the old woman washed her long, silver, pale hair and gently combed out the snags all in silence. The girl scrubbed her back and her feet and told her how lucky she was. Drogo is so rich that even his slaves wear golden collars. And of course, Danny recognizes the golden collar when it's placed on her a moment later, and it says, Last of all came the collar, a heavy golden torque, emblazoned with ancient Valerian glyphs. Now you look all princess, the girl said breathlessly when they were done. Danny glanced at her image in the silver looking glass that Lirio had so thoughtfully provided. A princess, she thought, but she remembered what the girl had said, how Khal Drogo was so rich even his slaves wore golden collars. She felt a sudden chill, and goose flesh pimpled her bare arms. So, again... Nobody's fool, right, right, you know, she sees through all this stuff right at the beginning. Um, It says, so she starts seeing through Viserys uh, right from the beginning as well, and Viserys bristled, guard your tongue, Mormont, or I'll have it out. I am no lesser man. I am the rightful lord of the seven kingdoms. The dragon does not beg. Sir Jorah lowered his eyes respectfully. Illyrio smiled enigmatically and tore a wing from the duck. Honey and grease ran over her fingers and dripped down into his beard as he nibbled at the tender meat. There are no more dragons, Danny thought, staring at her brother, though she did not say it aloud. So, yeah. Not not buying it. And then here's, even when she's wowed with the gift of the dragon's eggs, she's still not, you know, not completely turning her brain off here. So, I shall treasure them always. Danny had heard tales of such eggs, but she had never seen one, nor thought to see one. It was a truly magnificent gift, though she knew that Illyrio could afford to be lavish. He had collected a fortune in horses and slaves for his part in selling her to Caldrogo. So, still not fooled. Let's see. Ah, uh, so this is the important one, kind of the pinnacle of this seeing through Viserys. And that's when after she stands up to him in the grass and uh you know he's basically looks pitiful for the first time in front of her and she says to jorah my brother will never take back the seven kingdoms danny said she had known that for a long time she realized she had known it all her life only she had never let herself say the words even in a whisper but now she said them for jorah mormont and all the world to hear so jorah gave her a measuring look you think not he could not lead an army even if my lord husband gave him one danny said he has no coin The only knight who follows him reviles him as less than a snake. The Dothraki make mock of his weakness. He will never take us home. Wise child, the knight smiled. I am no child, she told him fiercely. Her heels pressed into the sides of her mount, rousing the silver to a gallop. Faster and faster she raced, leaving Jorah and Eri and the others far behind. The warm wind in her hair and the setting sun red on her face. By the time she reached the Kalisar it was dusk. So, here is strong, fierce Danny. You know, she's standing up. She just stood up to Viserys the first time, sees through him, and she's already declaring herself not a child. And that's kind of a subtle little line there. But just as we weep for Arya's sort of lost innocence, I think we can definitely the same goes for Danny. And there's a lot of Arya and, and Danny parallels, by the way. So it is West Coast 420. If you are uh, worshiping Garth right now, thank you very much. I am going to. Hold off, since we just got started. It is not cool to take long silent breaks in your live stream when you're just kind of getting into things. So I'm not going to do that. I worshipped Garth all day. Don't worry. Anyways, next trait up is sort of a. I group these all together because they're they're sort of related but a little bit different. They kind of appear in the same same scenes. But basically, Danny is resourceful. She's curious. She's intuitive. And she's brave. And all of these things uh, are, are sort of traits that come out when, uh, for her when she's basically in a foreign land with a foreign people and is completely confused, not knowing what's going on. And we start to see these traits rise up to the surface. So even during her terrifying wedding, she steps up to a challenge when it appears, even though it's a completely unforeseen challenge. So it says, Drogo stepped forward and put his hands on her waist. He lifted her up as easily if she were, as if she were a child, and set her on the thin Dothraki saddle, so much smaller than the ones she was used to. Danny sat there uncertain for a moment. No one had told her about this part. What should I do? She asked Illyrio. It was Sir Jorah Mormont who answered, take the reins and ride. You need not go far. Nervously, Danny gathered the reins on her hands and slid her feet into the short stirrups. She was only a fair rider. She had spent far more time traveling by ship and wagon and palanquin than by horseback. Praying that she would not fall off and disgrace herself, she gave the filly the lightest and most timid touch with her knees. And for the first time in hours, she forgot to be afraid. Or perhaps it was for the first time ever. So a nice triumphant moment, obviously. Danny is riding the horse, and she exalts here. And and the scene goes on, and it's really cool. Um, But just think about it. Like, Think about how nervous you were at your wedding, those of you who have been through a wedding. Now make yourself 13 and you've been sold into marital slavery and you're at this wedding where, by the way, remember, there's no other women. She's just watched a bunch of people murder each other. It's, this is like as shell shocked as a person could possibly be. And yet, and yet she like collects her wits, gets on the horse and, and rides it well with a completely new style of saddle that she's not familiar with uh, or barely familiar with at this point. So that's pretty cool, I think. Um, then we've got uh, going to talk more about how she continues to adapt to Dothraki lifestyle, which speaks very highly of Daenerys. And well, anyway, so we don't need to pull all the quotes. You guys basically remember how this works. She's riding horses. She's also learning the Dothraki customs, learning to respect their culture. She dresses like them, learns their words. And this is in stark contrast, of course, to Viserys, who adapts very poorly because. Both Danny and Viserys are stuck in a similar situation as far as they're not familiar with the culture. And basically, the only way to survive is to stop being stubborn and basically listen and observe. Viserys can't because of his pride. Danny does. And so let's look at this contrast. Um, you know, Danny, she shows resourcefulness, thoughtfulness, and open mindedness. And they serve her well. And that's what you need when you, of course, like travel abroad, you know? Um, you can't. You have to be open-minded when you travel abroad, or you're going to have a bad time, as they say. So when they see all the various gods and statues at based Dothrak, Danny marvels in wonder. Okay, she's looking at, at culture, at things she's never seen before, and she's impressed. And then, of course, Viserys calls them the trash of dead cities. And then he says, all these savages know how to do is steal the th- th- things better men have built and kill. He laughed. They do know how to kill. Otherwise, I'd have no use for them at all. They are my people now," Danny said. "You should not call them savages, brother." And so there you go. Danny's sticking up for her people already. And you know, I, I, Viserys. <laughs> he's clueless. DMs ask, "Dark Mother's asking why is Viserys so clueless?" It's pride. I really think it's pride. Um, he's just—he's so wrapped up in his own vision of himself becoming a king, and that he—he really—it it limits his his uh, his vision. And it's just—I think that's just part of how he is. He was just kind of an angry person, and we can we can turn around and and have uh, have sympathy for Viserys. You know, he had a rough bringing upbringing and all that. But considering him in relation to Danny, he is yes, exactly xenophobic. He's obsessed with his own bloodline. He's racist against the Dothraki. He's in- incredibly arrogant and stuck up. He's basically the worst. Kind of king, very similar to Joffrey. He would be like Joffrey if he was king. I mean, that's they're very similar characters, I think. So, in any case, uh, the, the complex thing about Viserys is simply that Danny that's the only person that she's had for family, for protection, for guidance, for anything. And so, it's you really feel for Danny having only Viserys uh, to rely on. In any case, so um, uh, this is highlighted again when Viserys confronts Danny uh, in the grass. And uh, Viserys gets whip strangled by the blood Rider. So it says, Viserys came upon her as sudden as a summer storm, his horse rearing beneath him as he reined up too hard. You dare, he screamed at her. You give commands to me, to me. He vaulted off the horse, stumbling as he landed. His face was flushed as he struggled back to his feet. He grabbed her, shook her. Have you forgotten who you are? Look at you, look at you. Danny did not need to look. She was barefoot with oiled hair wearing Dothraki riding leathers and a painted vest given her as a bride gift. She looked as though she belonged here. Viserys was soiled and stained in city silks and ring mail. And then, uh, so there it is. I mean, that's, this is kind of the moment. It's the big turning point moment, obviously for Dani, uh standing up to, um, you know, Viserys, but it's also a turning point when you can see her loyalty is also to the Dothraki and not, not to Viserys. Or you could say that her loyalty is just to right and wrong, because Viserys is in the wrong. But she's looking at herself and taking stock, and yeah, she's fully immersed herself in Dothraki culture here. And Viserys is trying to shame her for it, but she doesn't feel shame. So, uh, here's another quote about Viserys' stubborn ignorance. It says, after the day in the grass, when she had left him to walk back to the Kallisar, the Dothraki had laughingly called him Kal Raymar, the Sorefoot King. Cal Drogo had offered him a place in a, in, the, in a cart the next day, and Viserys had accepted. In his stubborn ignorance, he had not even known he was being mocked. The carts were for eunuchs, cripples, women giving birth, the very young and very old. That won him in yet another name, Kal Ragat, the Cart King. Similar to Danny at the wedding, where she's stepping up and doing something very brave and challenging and difficult, um, how about the horse heart scene, right? Uh, we don't need to read that one because we've done it a million times. But, I mean, this is like, you know, on those those challenge TV shows, uh, you know, the old ones, now they have like American Ninja Warrior and stuff like that. Yeah, I got Lamar Jackson. You're damn right. That's how I got here. Um, like American Ninja Warrior, it's all the obstacle course stuff. But they used to have shows, I forget the name, where it was just basically like a series of challenges. And a lot of them would be physical obstacles, but they'd toss in one like really gross eating challenge you got to eat all the super disgusting food and that was always really hard for me <laughs> i have a hard time with that so the horse heart thing i mean this is a real challenge and martin does a good job describing it you know danny's like you know training for two weeks eating blood drinking blood and chewing on all this uh, fear factor that's thank you that's the one like i always wanted to be on fear factor but i just knew like if they had anything with like beetles or eating blood, I'd be like, no, quit, lose, forfeit. So in any case, she was a champ. That was hard. Even if you're the type of person that can eat gross shit, um, she ate an entire horse heart in a room full of Dothraki chanting. And like, I don't know, man, that's, that's some serious courage. Eight Fun fact, an actual stallion's heart weighs about eight pounds. So that's not even possible to eat eight pounds of heart in one sitting. But of course, it's a story, you know. It is. But point is, it's like, yeah, that is uh... no Fear Factory is different. I never liked Fear Factory. I didn't like that automatic double kick drum trigger thing. Couldn't get down with Fear Factory. Um, You know, I mean, I don't hate him. But in any case, uh, she ate the horse heart, y'all. So there's that. Uh, Last point, I want to make uh, Danny consistently curious and wondrous about things which are strange, strange or foreign to her. And this reflects an open mindedness, which is somewhat rare. In this, uh, in Planetus, shall we say? Danny liked the strangeness of the Eastern Market too, with all its queer sights and sounds and smells. She often spent her mornings there, nibbling tree eggs, locust pie, and green noodles, listening to the high, ululating voices of the spell singers, gaping at manticores in silver cages, and immense gray elephants and the striped black and white horses of the Jogosnai. She enjoyed watching all the people too: dark, solemn Ashai, and tall, pale Carthene. The bright-eyed men of Yiti in their monkey-tail hats. Warrior maids from Biasabad, Mariana, and Akaya kayanaya with the iron rings in their nipples and rubies in their cheeks. Even the dour and frightening shadow men, who covered their arms and legs and chests with tattoos and hid their faces behind masks. The Eastern Market was a place of wonder and magic for Danny. So, not a, not a huge point, uh, but, you know, again, open-minded. She's... She finds wonder and excitement in the most strange things that could be scary and intimidating, and that is just a really cool uh, feature of her. Okay, so now we're gonna we're gonna start getting into some of the the meatier, heavier stuff. Danny is first and foremost an abused and oppressed person. Uh, it's an important part of her identity. Uh, like for me, I'm a white guy. I I I've dealt with. A little bit of oppression because I grew up in a repressive Christian, conservative uh, environment. Not that all Christian environments are repressive, but the one that I grew up in was uh, was particularly negative. However, I'm a white guy. So, you know, i got a lot of privilege and th- learning process that I had to do in life before I could learn more uh, to put myself in other people's shoes and share the perspectives of people who have been oppressed. But of course, if you are anything other than a white guy, you've dealt with more oppression than me. And some people like refugees or, you know, uh, people that have dealt with, uh, well, I guess there's not, I mean, there is modern slavery, not as much, uh, but I mean, there's, there's all kinds of human misery in the world. There's all kinds of oppression of various kinds, physical oppression, mental oppression, spiritual oppression, racial issues, gender issues. Danny is first and foremost sold into slavery. Okay, she is dispossessed. She doesn't have a home. She suffers physical and sexual abuse from the series. Uh, Then she's, you know, the thing with Drogo is like marital rape that sort of changes over time. But again, she's friggin' 13. Okay, and obviously, um, you know, marital rape is a whole other conversation to get into as far as like medieval. culture uh, like we saw sansa and um on the show you know sansa and ramsay with that kind of situation and unfortunately even when it's not that ugly in um when you know with arranged marriages like there, a lot of times the when you're sent off even if you know to marry a lord if you're a young princess you're basically at the mercy of that lord to be not an abuser or uh you know you have limited means of of leveraging power to resist abuse so don't want to talk around in circles forever, but the point is, we have to consider that that is Danny's identity, and that's important because all throughout the story, she identifies with other people that are oppressed in all sorts of ways, and that is a core part of her empathy. It's where her um, her moral, a lot of her moral uh, stances are grounded in, and she never loses that. And we see like right in the last book that we have a Dance with Dragons. She's spending a lot of time protecting refugees and oppressed people. So it's a very important part of her identity. And that's why George gives it to us in the very first chapter right from the get-go. So a lot of people that have suffered uh, relationship abuse and the abuse of, like, say, extreme poverty know about the idea that sometimes you don't consider yourself worthy of nice things. As you know, and consider let's, let, that's what Danny has going on, and contrast that to Besaria's entitlement here. And this is again from Danny's first chapter. It says, Her brother held the gown up for her inspection. This is beauty. Touch it. Go on. Caress the fabric. Danny touched it. The cloth was so smooth that it seemed to run through her fingers like water. She could not remember ever wearing anything so soft. It frightened her. She pulled her hand away. Is it really mine? So I think. This isn't necessarily her, like, thinking about Illyrio and like, oh, what does he really want? Like, she's literally being handed a dress and she can't even touch it because it's so nice that she she like almost is, like that, that can't be mine. And I think that is that is meant to show us like this is a, a frightened person who's never had a home, never had safety, never had security. And has been on the run, you know, her whole life. She's been conditioned to silence and submission by Viserys' wrath. We see that right away too. Danny said nothing. Magister Illyrio was a dealer in spices, gemstones, dragonbone, and other less savory things. He had friends in all of the nine free cities, it was said, and even beyond in base Dothrak in the fabled lands beside the Jade Sea. It was also said that he'd never had a friend he wouldn't cheerfully sell for the right price. Danny listened to the talk in the streets, and she heard these things. But she knew better than to question her brother when he wove his webs of dream. His anger was a terrible thing when roused. The series called it Waking the Dragon. So, this is very, very relatable to anybody who's had to deal with, you know, even short of an abusive situation, if you're dealing with somebody who's very controlling and emotionally overbearing. Um, and, and Viserys is, is fully abusive, you know, with his, with his anger, the way he, he throws it around and basically it conditions people to be silent. And that's what you see. Danny could say something, but she, she bites her tongue over and over again, just basically in terror of, uh, of series. And so this is a definite sign of abuse. You know, those are the quotes we could pull with that one, but we really don't need to go on. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty obviously, uh. Point is made and it's hammered home, you know, wake the dragon, he screams, wake the dragon every time he's unhappy until she finally smacks him upside the face. But in any case, Danny is no stranger to the disgusting gaze of lecherous predatory men. And George shows us that right from the beginning, too. She's too skinny, Viserys said. His hair, the same silver blonde as hers, had been pulled back tightly behind his head and fastened with a dragon bone brooch. "'It was a severe look that emphasized the hard, gaunt lines of his face. "'He rested his hand on the hilt of the sword that Illyrio had lent him and said, "'Are you sure Cal Drogo likes his women this young?' "'She has had her blood. She is old enough for the cow, Illyrio told him, "'not for the first time. Look at her, that silver-gold hair, those purple eyes. "'She is the blood of old Valyria, no doubt, no doubt, and high-born, "'daughter of the old king, sister to the new. "'She cannot fail to entrance our Drogo.' When he released her hand, Daenerys found herself trembling. So this is a really I mean this this is a creepy scene. This is this is supposed to make us like this is not subtle, okay? <laughs> this is supposed to show us what kind of danger that that Danny is in. Her brother is the person that's supposed to be protecting her. And and he's treating her like a like a piece of meat. Like, like less than meat. I mean, he's sitting there with Viserys, like appraising her figure and shit. She's 13. It's gross. Uh, It's, it's gross. And this is what Danny has been navigating uh, her whole life. And again, this is important, not just to look at the grossness of it, like the importance is that this gives her empathy and understanding for other people who have been through the same things that she has. And that is, that is what we're being shown. <clears throat> these are values here. So Viserys, these are how values are, are made in any case. So Viserys makes Danny's being sold into marital slavery uh, basically explicit at her wedding to Drogo. And so I thought it was worth pulling that quote. And it says, Magister Illyrio laughed lightly through his forked beard, but Viserys did not so much as smile. He can have her tomorrow if he likes, her brother said. He glanced over at Danny and she lowered her eyes, so long as he pays the price. Illyria waved a languid hand in the air, rings glittering on his fat fingers. I have told you, all is settled. Trust me, the Cal has promised you a crown and you shall have it. So, very overt, Viserys is selling Danny to the Cal. And I thought it was worth pointing out because the fact that Viserys feels compelled to actually say it in front of Danny's face, it's like he's not even trying to dress it up, he's not trying to make her feel better about it. He like literally just doesn't give an F and uh, yeah, it's tough. So um, uh, this, uh, yeah, it is foreshadowing. It's a nice one. Yeah. As long as he pays the price. Yeah. He paid the price. He got his golden crown that he did. Uh, So now check out the wedding. We talked about it briefly earlier, but this is, this is a paragraph that sums it up. Danny had never felt so alone as she did seated in the midst of that vast horde. Her brother had told her to smile, and so she smiled until her face ached and the tears came unbidden to her eyes. She did her best to hide them, knowing how angry Viserys would be if she saw her crying, terrified of how Cal Drogo might react. So, again, highlighting the rock in the hard place, the pressure on this 13 year old child to not crack. You can feel the smile carved onto her face. It's cruel, it's tough. It's a it's a it's a cauldron in which she is formed, but this is where this is where her resi- resilience and strength comes from dealing with stuff like this. Um, and she's showing it like she does. Just the fact that she doesn't crumble is amazing. So, all right. So here's uh, here's another good one, Danny. Despite being abused, despite going through all this that she does she is a very merciful and kind person. And we see it come out all the time. So her first demonstration of mercy is actually for Viserys. And there's several occasions. Uh, So after he confronts Danny in the grass and is demoted to Calwragas, the cart king, she then has her blood riders release him with no additional physical punishment. You You know, should we take an ear? And he's like, no, no, don't hurt him. She does make him walk, which humiliates him in the eyes of the Dothraki. Um, though that's no more than what he did himself already, of course. Uh, and then later, when Jora tells her of Viserys stealing her dragon eggs, she says, Danny had not known, had not even suspected that he should have them. He does not need to steal them. He had only to ask. He is my brother and my true king. He is your brother, Sir Jora acknowledged. <laughs> Very funny, Sir Jora. You did not understand, sir, she said. My mother died giving me birth, and my father and my brother Rhaegar, even before that, I would never have known so much as their names if Asarius had not been there to tell me. He was the only one left, the only one. He is all I have. So, this is in Danny's fifth chapter. Um, and this is almost like one of the last moments that she's really holding on to him as her brother. Because so I think it's actually the next one. It is the next chapter when he drunkenly enters the feast, puts the sword to her belly, and sort of severs that relationship. But you guys know how family is. Family's tough sometimes. You get angry, you fight, you hurt each other's feelings. But, you know, it takes a lot to disown a family member. Um, It's something that people only do if they really have no other choice. And even if you've done one of those things where you didn't speak for years, down deep, you still, you're hoping. You're hoping that maybe you can put it back together and that one day you can speak to that lost family member. Family, those bonds don't die. So even though Viserys... Is awful, and even though he's abusive, it's important that we read this and understand. This is this is all that Danny had, and so she does find mercy and sympathy for him, even though, even though, Viserys is caught trying to steal the eggs. And um, what does Danny do? She's not mad, she's not offended. She feels sorry for him. She realizes how desperate he is, and 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 that's. Again, this is completely undeserved mercy that she's extending, uh, but she still maintains empathy. And having empathy for people that you could view as your enemy is an important character trait to point out, I think. So now when, uh, when he drunkenly enters the feast tent right before he dies, she thinks of offering him the eggs to pacify him. A sense of dread closed around her heart. Go to him, she commanded Sorjora. Stop him. Bring him here. Tell him he can have the dragon's eggs if that's what he wants. The knight rose swiftly to his feet. The blade. You must not, she begged him. Please, Viserys, it is forbidden. Put down the sword and come share my cushions. There's drink, food. Is it the dragon's eggs you want? You can have them. Only throw away the sword. So she's really trying here. And Viserys literally has to point the sword at her belly and threaten the life of her and her child for her to sh cut that relationship. And it begins, the the narrative for begin, begins to refer to Viserys as the man who had been her brother. So, there we go. Um, but, uh, going back a little bit, uh, she uses her new, when she starts to get a little bit of power with Drogo, uh, she uses that to regain some modicum of respect for Viserys after he was, you know, riding in the cart. And it says, it had taken much pleading, and all the pillow tricks Daria had taught her, but... Before, uh, and all the tricks, uh, pillow tricks Daria had taught her before Danny had been able to make Drogo relent and allow the Ceres to rejoin them at the head of the column. So even after the big fight and the big fallout, she's trying to regain him some manner of honor. And then it says, uh, we all remember how Danny thoughtfully gave the Ceres gifts. Um, you know, uh, oh yeah, so that was another one. She tried to help him adapt to Dothraki culture, right? She made out Dothraki fashion clothing, but adorned with colors and markings of House Targaryen, so that you know he would still feel like, uh, like the big, big Targaryen boss man. And honestly, these are pretty thoughtful gifts. This is Danny. Think she's trying to meet Viserys halfway. It's like, okay, Viserys clearly uncomfortable with Dothraki life, making no effort, spits on Dothraki rags, and doesn't like them. So maybe if they have the Targaryen shit all over them, right? Maybe then he'll be more comfortable. Um, and, of course, you know, our, so the line about that is, says, the Dothraki would respect him more if he looked less a beggar, she hoped, and perhaps he would forgive her for shaming him that day in the grass. And, of course, it doesn't work. Uh, Viserys throws the gifts, you know, back in her face, and she ends up, you know, he gets abusive, and she has to take the gold medallion uh, uh, belt and uh, slap him upside the face with it, and uh, cutting her face, and sending him running. Then there's um, there's also the, uh, oh yes, in the Dothraki market. This is just a little fun one. Uh, when they go to the market at Vase Dothrak, uh, it's pointed out that she buys gifts for all her handmaidens. Um, she bought a fertility potion for Doria, who was trying to get pregnant, so that's a very thoughtful gift. Um, she's not one of those people who doesn't pay attention to the lives of her subjects and servants and handmaidens, okay? Daria is her handmaiden, but we've I guess what I'm saying is that this scene sort of sums up her relation to her handmaidens. She does not treat them like servants. She talks to them very kindly. Uh, She asks them about their lives. She's interested in them as people and this is a good example of it. She buys a fertility potion for Daria who wants to get pregnant and then she thinks to buy the other two gifts because she bought one for Daria and she wants to get one for everybody. She's just decent. So now we're getting into the meat, the heart of this. What does Danny want? Is it home? Is it Westeros? Is it the Iron Throne? Is it all of those things? How do those things relate to one another? That's what we're going to talk about. And this is really where it gets down to foreshadowing the end of Danny's arc, I believe. So one second, real quick. I'm going to take a drink and scan the chat. By the way, guys, um, I've been blasting through the outline. Uh, I've been skimming the chat. I have not been reading a ton of comments out. However, um, this is such, when I do outline podcasts like this, as opposed to like a Q&A, uh, what I will do is go back and read all these chat comments on the reread or on the, uh, while I'm editing the audio for the podcast. So uh, my plan, I mentioned, of course, I'm going to do four live streams like this, where I've basically got a detailed note outline, one for each book that Danny's in. And after that, I'm probably going to do at least one or maybe two edited videos where, like, condense down all the best character information and end up with, like, a 15- or 20-minute video about Danny's character start to finish that I hope will maybe not go viral, but, you know, get passed around a little more. I mean, it's okay if it goes viral. Uh, But you know how it is, guys. Um, People tend to watch the short videos a lot more than a two-hour live stream. So point is, you guys, you know, mythical astronomy is always a very collaborative Uh, affair. So all the stuff you're throwing in the chat right now, I will be scanning it and taking it in and integrating it into the edited video. And I will, of course, throw you a hat tip if I, you know, use any ideas that are popping up in there. So all that is to say, keep throwing your ideas out in the chat, and I appreciate your participation. And uh, together, we will set the record straight on our good Khaleesi, our queen Daenerys. So... What does Daenerys want? What a girl wants? Oh, you didn't see that coming, did you? <laughs> no. We won't keep it going either. So, what does Danny want? She longs for childhood that she never had, stolen innocence, and a safe environment that one identifies with home. That is the number one thing. Here is a Game of Thrones Danny one. When he was gone, Danny went to her window and looked out wistfully on the waters of the bay. The square brick towers of Pentos were black silhouettes outlined against the setting sun. Danny could hear the singing of the red priests as they lit their night fires and the shouts of ragged children playing games beyond the walls of the estate. For a moment, she wished she could be out there with them, barefoot and breathless and dressed in tatters, with no past and no future and no feast to attend at Caldrogo's manse." So this is it right here. This is the window into what Danny wants. This is what the house with the red door means. It means just that. It means a place where she can play games like a child. She doesn't have a future, past, no troubled past, no trauma in the past, no horrible future that she has to think about being sold into marital slavery. She literally just looks at children playing outside and wishes she could be part of them and can't. And the, the device of looking out the window, of course, is a classic literary way to show distance. You know, just like Bran up in the tower after he's paralyzed and he's looking down at all the kids playing in the yard and he can't join them. It's very similar. So, uh, desire for home, like I said, as defined above, that's what she wants. And this is immediately followed by Viserys' idea of home, which Danny does not at first relate to. And this is a really important point. Danny eventually adopts Viserys' goals of retaking Westeros, but at first this is not the case. So we have to ask ourselves: is retaking Westeros something that Danny actually believes in? It's a very important question. And does she want it for the same reasons that Viserys does? So here's the paragraph. The Dothraki called that land Reish Andali, the land of the Andals. In the Free Cities, they talked of Westeros and the Sunset Kingdoms. Her brother had a simpler name. Our land, he called it. The words were like a prayer with him. If he said them enough, the gods were sure to hear. Ours by blood right, taken from us by treachery, but ours still, ours forever. You do not steal from the dragon, oh no. The dragon remembers. And perhaps the dragon did remember, but Danny could not. She had never seen this land, her brother said was theirs, this realm beyond the narrow sea. These places he talked of, Casterly Rock and the Erie. Highgarden in the Vale of Arryn, Dorne in the Isle of Faces. They were just words to her. She had been born on Dragonstone nine moons after their flight while a raging summer storm threatened to rip the island fastness apart. They said that storm was terrible. The Targaryen fleet had smashed while it lay at anchor and huge stone blocks were ripped from the parapets and sent hurtling into the wild waters of the narrow sea. Her mother had died birthing her and for that her brother Viserys had never forgiven her. She did not remember Dragonstone either. So this is really, I mean, this is stands out more rereading it now after watching the show and watching or and after reading all the books. We're so used to seeing on screen Daenerys, you know, I will take what is mine with fire and blood. And you know, we're so used to thinking about Danny's arc culminating in taking Westeros, retaking Westeros, that we forget that there's actually really important sort of sleight of hand, an important swapping that happens. She starts off wanting home and thinking about home as this very abstract, safe place. And eventually it begins to blur and get merged with the idea of retaking Westeros and tracing that evolution is very insightful. And it's one of the things that we're about to do. So, right from the beginning, we see that she's totally disconnected from Viserys' vision. She doesn't know what these places are, they're just words. And she doesn't even remember Dragonstone, the you know uber Targaryen place, if there ever was one. She doesn't remember that. So, her first fond memory is, again, of the idea of home. But as you can see, it's defined as a safe and loving environment, and it's not tied to Westeros or Targaryen identity. And this is also in Dany's first chapter. She remembered Sir Willem dimly, a great gray bear of a man, half-blind, roaring and bellowing orders from his sickbed. The servants had lived in terror of him, but he had always been kind to Danny. He called her Little Princess, and sometimes My Lady, and his hands were soft as old leather. He never left his bed, though, and the smell of sickness clung to him day and night, a hot, moist, sickly-sweet odor. That was when they lived in Bravos, in the big house with the red door. Danny had her own room there, with a lemon tree outside her window. After Sir Willem had died, the servants had stolen what little money they had left, and soon after they had been put out of the big house. Danny had cried when the red door closed behind them forever. They had wandered since then from Bravos to Mir, from Mir to Tyrosh, and on to Kohor and Volantis and Lys, never staying long in any one place. So, this you can really see not only what the red door represents, but the sense of loss. This is why she's stuck on it, and she wants it back because. It was the only time she felt safe, and then once she was put out, she immediately went to being homeless and wandering. And it followed the death of the only safe person that she really ever had in her life, Willem Derry. And so you can see why she, the the, house, the red door house with the red door serves as this narrative device to represent Danny's longing. But it's just important to remember that she's longing for her lost childhood. It's not the house with the red door. It's not Dragonstone. It's not any particular place. It's safety. Simple as that. It's what every child has. It's what the definition of childhood is, a safe place where you can play and not be a freaking adult and not have to worry about all the evil stuff in the world. So putting a point on it here, also in a Game of Thrones, Danny won. We will have it all back someday, sweet sister, he would promise her. Sometimes his hands shook when he talked about it. The jewels and the silks, Dragonstone and King's Landing, the Iron Throne and the Seven Kingdoms, all they have taken from us, we will have it back. Viserys lived for that day. All the Daenerys wanted was that big house with the red door, the lemon tree outside her window, and the childhood she had never known. So there you have it. Lost childhood. That's what it means. Fighting the trident over again is, I mean... That's Viserys' jam, guys, until Danny sees herself as Rhaegar in her wake, the Dragon Dream, of course. Although that is likely implanted by Quave. And we're going to talk about Quave as this series goes on. But Quave kind of continues the influence of Viserys as far as trying to push her towards retaking Westeros in an orgy of violence. Uh, but in any case, Danny saw the smallest hint of a smile playing around his full lips, but her brother did not notice. And that's the she's looking at. Nodding, he pushed back a curtain and stared off into the night. And Danny knew he was fighting the battle of the Trident once again. And there's a lot of lines like this in the first few chapters about how Viserys is obsessed with the Trident. It's like the place where the Targaryen's lost. And so he's going back and like fighting that battle over as, a, you know, over, yeah, he's totally a lost causer. You, can't you see Viserys with like a stars and bars? <laughs> totally can. Exactly, Salty Caps fan. The Red Door is a metaphor rather than a mystery. That's it. So, this first chapter closes with one more highlight of what Viserys wants Westeros versus what Danny wants, which is home. Cal Drogo had never lost a fight. He is Aegon the Dragon Lord come again, and you will be his queen. Danny looked at Cal Drogo. His face was hard and cruel, his eyes as cold and dark as onyx. Her brother hurt her sometimes when she woke the dragon, but he did not frighten her the way this man frightened her. I don't want to be his queen, she heard herself say in a small, thin voice. Please, please, Viserys, I don't want to. I want to go home. Home? He kept his voice low. Oh, sorry. Home? But he but she could hear the fury in his tone. How are we to go home, sweet sister? They took our home from us. He drew her into the shadows, out of sight, his fingers digging into her skin. How are we to go home, he repeated, meaning King's Landing and Dragonstone and all the realm they had lost. Danny had only meant their rooms in Illyrio's estate. No true home, surely, though all they had. But her brother did not want to hear that. There was no home for him there. Even the big house with the red door had never been home for him. So basically, George is just going overboard here. Not overboard, but making sure we notice that there's this... Contrast between what Viserys wants and what Viserys considers to be fulfilling and safe and secure. It's this idea of retaking Westeros. And Danny, she's just thinking of like the last place she was where people weren't trying to like rape or kill her or sell her into slavery or whatever. So there you go. Now, uh, Danny 3 begins to show us Danny adopting Viserys' notion that home equals Westeros, even as she sees that he will never be king or conquer Westeros. So she asked Sir Jorah, and this is during that conversation where they're talking about how Viserys will never be king. She says, what do you pray for, Sir Jorah? She asked him. Home, he said. His voice was thick with longing. I pray for home too, she told him, believing it. Sir Jorah laughed. Look around you then, Khaleesi. And this is, you know, they're in the middle of the Dothraki Sea. So he's pointing at the Dothraki Sea. But it was not the plains Danny saw then. It was King's Landing and the great red keep that Aegon the Conqueror had built. It was Dragonstone where she had been born. In her mind's eye, they burned with a thousand lights, a fire blazing in every window. In her mind's eye, all the doors were red. And so you can see the way that she is trying to get into this whole idea of retaking Westeros being important. She's. It's beginning to merge, and she sees that now. Dragonstone is becoming the house with the red door. Uh, And this is no doubt a result of her embracing her dragon nature and finding strength. If you remember that first dragon dream where she feels purified and begins to turn things around and not want to kill herself and learn how to ride and stuff, this is right after that turning point moment. And so that's that's when she begins to start to see... Dragon-related ideas as something that can be a refuge to her. So following the scene, she hears the Carthine tale of dragons coming from the moon, or maybe a shy. Uh, you guys know that one. We don't need to talk about that. She begins to look at the eggs and wonder. And then finally, she turns the tables of power in Drogo's and her and Drogo's sexual relationship after getting advice from her lysine handmaiden Dorea. That's basically the, the whole thing that's happening in that chapter. So Danny 3. Maybe her, her best chapter in *A Game of Thrones* it's basically that that uh, turning point. You know, it's when she begins to find strength. So, Danny talks with Jorah in her fifth chapter about convincing Drogo to conquer Westeros, which Danny seems to be adopting as her goal. Though her reasoning seems different than Viserys's, she's essentially looking for home and wondering if it could be Westeros. So check this out. Uh, I said moon. I didn't say moon meteors, but now I did. Pat Riley. "'Moon meteors! Drink!' "'The knight looked thoughtfully. "'The cal has never seen the Seven Kingdoms,' he said. "'They are nothing to him. "'If he thinks of them at all, no doubt he thinks of islands, "'a few small cities clinging to the rocks "'in the manner of Lorath or Lys, surrounded by stormy seas. "'The riches of the east must seem a more tempting prospect. "'But he must ride west,' Danny said, despairing. "'Please, help me make him understand.' She had never seen the Seven Kingdoms, either, no more than Drogo, and she felt as though she knew them from all the tales her brother had told her. Viserys had promised her a thousand times that he would take her back one day, but he was dead now, and his promises had died with him. The Dothraki do things in their own time for their own reasons, the knight answered. Have patience, princess. Do not make your brother's mistake. We will go home, I promise you. Home? The word made her feel sad. Sir Jorah had his bare island, but what was home to her? A few tales, names recited as solemnly as the words of a prayer, the fading memory of a red door. Was Vase Dothrak to be her home forever? When she looked at the crones of the Dosh Killeen, was she looking at her future? She, one, she, this, is, this is, you know, like I said, she's wondering if Westeros can be home. She's not sure. Uh, thanks, Dark Mother, doing some mod stuff. Yes, if you're watching and enjoying it, please click the like button. Make sure you're subscribed to my channel. Make sure you click the notification bell. All those things help. And leave a comment uh, afterwards, too. I mentioned that last time, and a lot of people were uh, surprised to hear that. YouTube promotes videos based on how many comments they had. So take the smartest thing you said in the chat and on your way out after we're done, please leave a little comment, and that would be awesome. So thank you. And I think someone's digging up the uh, Patreon link for yours truly i will actually just pull it up here if anybody's interested in joining the starry host making sure i keep do this and don't have to like i don't know find some really boring job where i don't talk about symbolism and do podcasts for you guys then go on over to patreon oh you already dropped it ball the Bard. cool well as usual i'm a little slow <laughs> right behind you but yeah here it is guys so thanks and um I'm constantly changing what I do with my Patreon because I have ADHD and I'm not very good about being consistent, but I do. I'm always dropping various Patreon-only things. Sometimes it's a Patreon-only live stream. Sometimes it's writing that I've got. uh, Sometimes it's uh, just sort of updates on what's going on. So, uh, yeah, there's little, there's little, little freebies and good things. And, of course, nicknames, happy nicknames. Alright, so later as Drogo is dying, and Danny is stubbornly trying to save his life, and maintain his calasars, they're basically starting to scatter. There's a very subtle passage which discusses Danny's concept of home again. Make him another poultice, Danny begged. This time I will make certain he wears it. The time for that is past, my lady, Mary said. All I can do now is ease the dark road before him so he might ride painless to the nightlands. He will be gone by morning. Her words were a knife through Danny's breast. What what had she ever done to make the gods so cruel? She had finally found a safe place, had finally tasted love and hope. She was finally going home, and now to lose it all. No, she pleaded, save him and I will free you, I swear it. You must know a way, some magic. And of course this leads her to opening the door to uh, Miriam dark magic chicanery and the Tent of Dancing Shadows. But the point I want to make here is that she's thinking about the things that she's losing right at that moment. And she thinks about finally going home, which, of course, refers to Drogo's recent promise to tear down the men in the iron suits and all that stuff and, uh, you know, take Westeros for Danny. And so she thinks, oh, you know, I'm finally going home. But look at the rest of that line. She had finally found a safe place. She had finally tasted love and hope. So that's actually what she is losing here. She's losing safety, she's losing love, and she's losing hope. And that is what really, these are the things that are important to her. And that's the same thing as that sense of home and lost childhood that we're talking about here. And it's just that the the Kalasar has come to represent that. She has a place of belonging. She has a kind of love with Cal Drago, obviously complicated issues, but at at this point they they do have love for each other she's got a a child in her stomach, so she's got the promise of a family coming, and all of that is slipping away now, and she's about to be subject to violence and uncertainty again and so that just uh, sort of further shows you know what her what it is that she values and what's uh what it is that she is looking for which is a sense of belonging dragon dreams guide danny's transformation that is going to be the next section we're going to talk about the dragon dreams but not from a symbolism point of view uh, but rather from the point of view of what they say about what danny uh conceives of as being a dragon because it's not just, roar, roar! I'm a big scary dragon, I will burn and kill fire and blood. That's the thing about this, is that when you say House Targaryen, fire and blood, you think dragons, violence and destruction. The cool thing about uh, dragons, though, uh, you guys know, going dipping into mythology a little bit, dragons can serve a lot of roles in mythology. A lot of Eastern mythology uh, uses dragons as symbols of enlightenment and knowledge, and transformation, and esoteric wisdom, and magic. And that none of those things had to do with destruction, conquest, or violence. And although the fire and blood association of the dragons is much easier to notice, and it sort of steals the show, uh, the other more interesting and positive empowering ideas about dragon or draconic identity are also there, too. And this is actually the first way in which Danny conceives of uh, becoming the dragon. So, Didi Volano, oh, a T-shirt. Oh, you guys, that's right. You got to see my cool logo. Yes, we do need T-shirts. I've got a one like this that says mythical astronomy, too. Uh, and, yeah, we should make some, some more T-shirts. That's a good idea. We'll see if I can uh, get that going. Thank you. I, I do, uh, you know, mostly this podcast is about words but I do I do consider myself a multi artist. I do, I do uh, visual art, so I always appreciate a little bit of love for the logos and things. Anyways, that's what we're here to talk about. Danny, here to talk about Danny. Stay on topic. After the smoke breaks, it's always harder. Ooh, lots of t-shirt love. Yep, I do have a version on white, and it does look good. I like the fire logo on white. It's one of my favorites. All right, so Dragon Dreams. Like I said, they tell a story about Danny and the idea of being a dragon. So this first dragon dream is very unique because it's the only one where the dragon is antagonistic, and it seems to basically represent Viserys as an antagonizing force. In this dream, uh, the bloody thighs seem to imply sexual violence, although they turn out to imply childhood as or childbirth as well. So here we go. There are no more dragons. Danny thought, staring at her brother, though she did not dare say it aloud. Yet that night she dreamt of one. Viserys was hitting her, perching her. She was naked, clumsy with fear. She ran from him, but her body seemed thick and ungainly. He struck her again. She stumbled and fell. You woke the dragon, he screamed as he kicked her. You woke the dragon, you woke the dragon. Her thighs were slick with blood. She closed her eyes and whimpered. As if in answer, there was a hideous ripping sound and the crackling of some great fire. When she looked again, Viserys was gone. Great columns of flame rose all around, and in the midst of them was the dragon. It turned its great head slowly. When its molten eyes found hers, she woke, shaking and covered with a fine sheen of sweat. She had never been so afraid, until the day of her wedding came at last. And so this one is terrifying. Um, This is, you know, waking the dragon, being clearly associated with Viserys' abuse. And so we've got this idea that A waking dragon is this angry, unreasonable, abusive force, right? There's that. However, at the wedding itself, she begins to identify dragons with personal strength. And perhaps this is like, as a last resort, pushed to the edge. This is what she finds, okay? So she sat in her wedding silks, nursing a cup of honeyed wine, afraid to eat, talking silently to herself. And remember, smile plastered on her face tears running down, watching violence, nobody that speaks her language, and she's just there, isolated, scared. That's the same we here, okay? So, what does she do? She talks silently to herself. She says, I am the blood of the dragon, she told herself. I am Daenerys Stormborn, princess of Dragonstone, of the blood and seed of Aegon the Conqueror. Most of all, She was afraid of what would happen tonight under the stars when her brother gave her up to the hulking giant who sat drinking beside her with a face as still and cruel as a bronze mask. I am the blood of the dragon, she told herself again. Then as she rides to consummate her marriage with Drogo, filled with fear, it says, The tiny silver bells in his long braid rang softly as he rode. I am the blood of the dragon, she whispered aloud as she followed, trying to keep her courage up. I am the blood of the dragon. I am the blood of the dragon. The dragon was never afraid. So we can see like she is she literally has no one to turn to. The only person that has been protecting her is Viserys. And Viserys just sold her into marital slavery. She has no idea what Drogo is going to be like. She hasn't seen the first crack of like, you know, kindness in Drogo. which She eventually does see not yet. And so she as terrified as she could possibly be. And this is what she turns to. I am the blood of the dragon. I am the blood of the dragon. So now the real turn comes in that Danny 3 chapter, like I said, when we get a flashback montage of her overcoming her initial struggles with the Dothraki through a dragon dream. It says, At first, it had not come easy. The Kalasar had broken camp the morning after her wedding, moving east towards Vase Dothraki. And by the third day, Danny thought she was going to die. Saddle sores opened on her bottom, hideous and bloody. Her thighs were chafed raw, her hands blistered from the reins, the muscles of her legs and back so racked with pain she could scarcely sit. By the time dusk fell, her handmaids would need to help her down from her mount. Even the nights brought no relief. Khal Drogo ignored her when they rode, even as he ignored her during their wedding. Yet every night, sometime before the dawn, Drogo would come to her tent and wake her in the dark to ride her as relentlessly as he rode his stallion. He always took her from behind, Dothraki fashion, for which Danny was grateful. That way, her lord husband could not see the tears that her that wet her face, and she could use her pillow to muffle her cries of pain. It's really f- sad, you guys. Now well, there goes my. Uh, <laughs> now this video is going to be. Um, man, not supposed to cuss. YouTube's clamped down with a with a cussing, so I might not get um, advertisements from everybody. Not no Disney ads on the stream. Oh well. It is really sad, though. What can I say? So when he was done, he would close his eyes and begin to snore softly. And Danny would lie beside him, her body bruised and sore, hurting too much for sleep. Day followed day, night followed night, until Danny knew she could not endure a moment longer. She would rather kill herself than go on, she decided one night. So if George was being ambiguous about this being marital slavery and marital rape, with the wedding night scene, if you remember, where, you know, Drogo keeps going until she gets the answer yes. It's a little weird, a little Stockholm-y and stuff. Here, George is making it abundantly clear that what is going on is rape. So I've heard some people say that it's not clear. It's clear. And George is making it clear. Uh, So just for the record, there it is. Uh, So between that and the physical difficulty of suddenly adjusting to riding horses all day, um, she's ready to kill herself. And then she has this dragon dream. Yet, she, when she slept that night, she dreamt the dragon dream again. Viserys was not in it this time. There was only her and the dragon. Its scales were black as night, wet and slick with blood. Her blood, Danny sensed. Its eyes were po- pools of molten magma. And when it opened its mouth, the flame came roaring out in a hot jet. She could hear it singing to her. She opened her arms to the fire, embraced it, let it swallow her whole, let it cleanse her and temper her and scour her clean. She could feel her flesh sear and blacken and slough away, could feel her blood boil and turn to steam, and yet there was no pain. She felt strong and new and fierce. And the next day, strangely, she did not seem to hurt quite so much. It was as if the gods had heard her and taken pity. Even her handmaids noticed the change. Kalisi Jiki said, what is wrong? Are you sick? I was, she answered, standing over the dragon's eggs that Illyrio had given her when she wed. She touched one the largest of the three, running her hand lightly over the shell. Black and scarlet, she thought, like the dragon in my dream. The stone felt strangely warm beneath her fingers. Or was she still dreaming? She pulled her hand back nervously. From that hour onward, each day was easier than the one before. Her legs grew stronger, her blisters burst, and her hands grew calloused. Her soft thighs toughened, supple as leather." So like I said, this is one of the most important Dany chapters in the story. This is where uh, everything turns around, and she starts gaining strength. And it is done through the lens of this dragon dream. And so this is this is a very hard to miss thing here. The idea this is the first time that she embraces being a dragon person, and it is essentially it represents inner strength and transformation. That's what it represents. Sometimes one of say things three times in three different ways but that's that's it's that simple so it no longer represents her abusive brother Viserys it's now her embracing her magical destiny as a Targaryen dragon uh but I guess what I'm trying to say is that you know sim- symbolism wise we're seeing Azor high stuff here right she's becoming a dragon and she's been uh, burned and then sort of, you know, scoured away by fire and reborn. It's a foreshadowing of what she's going to do in the alchemical wedding bonfire when she births the dragons. So there is definitely magical destiny stuff going on here. But on a more basic level, this really represents Danny turning her dragon heritage uh, into a focal point for her courage and strength. It's basically just a device she's ju- uh, using to summon her resilience. And that's what the same thing she did on her wedding day and wedding night when she repeats to herself, I am the blood of the dragon in order to to not be afraid. So her embrace of her dragon nature begins as a survival mechanism. In other words, the, the dragon does not at this point represent conquest, aggression, or violence, but rather more something more like the Eastern idea of dragons representing enlightenment and transformation. Danny's dragon dream doesn't cause her to want to harm or conquer anyone, but instead serves as an anchor for her growing resilience and strength. Uh, in Danny's third chapter, after standing up to Viserys in the grass and declaring that he would never conquer Westeros, she hears. That's when she hears the tale of the origin of dragons and feels inspired. So Daria offers that the dragons uh, come from the moon, of course, and Eri and Jiki dismiss that. But then Danny asks Daria to stay behind and talk with her about, you know, about that story and. Also about other things. And as it turns out, Danny asks Doria, who's a former Lysani bed slave, to tra- uh, help her, quote, turn the tables in her sexual relationship with Drogo. And this is the night that she tells Drogo, you know, I would look on your face. And they, you know, don't do a doggy style. And uh, they, Danny begins to change the power dynamic. She begins to take agency and to get Drogo to listen to her. And Drogo begins to respect her. And this newfound agency and courage is linked to her embracing her dragon nature. Um, This growth is also linked to her perceptiveness as seeing through the illusion of Viserys' bluster is also a part of her empowerment and her new sight and vision. And all of this jives with the dragon symbolizing not only growth but also enlightenment. So she's becoming wise, more sure of herself. She's seeing through things with more conviction. She's reclaiming her personal power. That's right, Baldabard, which she then... That's right, and we're getting to that, how she uses it. So soon after, Danny is pregnant, uh, and once she's pregnant, this begins her sort of Misa mother line of symbolism, which we're going to start talking about more as as we go through her chapters. So after standing up to Viserys again in the fourth chapter, when she offers him the gifts and he rejects him and she hits him with the belt— Um, George closes with a beat that matches the end of the third chapter as she gazes into the shells of the dragon eggs once again. They were beautiful, and sometimes just being close to them made her feel stronger, braver, as if somehow she were drawing strength from the stone dragons locked inside. She was lying there, holding the egg, when she felt the child move within her, as if he were reaching out, brother to brother, blood to blood. You are the dragon, Danny whispered to him, the true dragon. I know it. I know it and she smiled and went to sleep dreaming of home and so again the george is wrapping these things together the idea of safety and security that's that that's the home that danny's talking about here and it's coming from her starting to feel like she has a family and starting to feel like she's got hope and love and so it's just you know kind of subtle but it's a nice little period on that sentence So once again, we see that dragons are associated with Danny finding inner strength and even inner peace, tranquility. And we can also see that the concept of home, again, joined with the emergence of her dragon nature. So let's talk about John Isai is having fun. This is excellent. Cool, man. Glad you're having it. D. Vlano. Uh, So uh, Bloodstone Emperor is from George Martin um, and Starry Wisdom is from Lovecraft, but Martin used Starry Wisdom Church from Lovecraft and attached it to Bloodstone Emperor. So I think that is what they are talking about. Just as an aside. I hadn't said Starry Wisdom or anything on this podcast, so eyes were drawn to that comment. In any case, relationship with violence, that's our next topic. Because obviously, when we're looking at the question of, is Danny going to turn into a mad woman? Who massacres innocents in King's Landing? Answer: No. Um, then we've got to consider her relationship with violence, and there's a couple different facets to this. Um, and it's gonna—I think there's more of that in later books, but there's definitely some uh, from the first one. So this is at the uh, at the wedding to Drogo. It's Danny's second chapter, and this is the passage that talks about the violence at the wedding. And what we're looking for is is basically Danny's reaction, right? Danny looked away from the coupling, frightened when she realized what was happening, but a second warrior stepped forward, and a third, and soon there was no way to avert her eyes. Then two men seized the same woman. She heard a shout, saw a shove, and in the blink of an eye, the Rx were out, long, razor-sharp blades, half-sword and half-scythe. A dance of death began as the warriors circled and slashed, leaping toward one another, whirling the blades around their heads, shrieking insults at each clash. No one made a move to interfere. Her wedding must have been especially blessed. Before the day was over, a dozen men had died. As the hours passed, the terror grew in Danny until it was all she could do not to scream. She was afraid of the Dothraki, whose ways seemed alien and monstrous, as if they were beasts in human skins and not true men at all. So, you know, very simple. She's not into it. She's repulsed by violence. Um, and you think... Uh, you think, okay, well, maybe she's just, you know, sweet summer child, 13, you know, doesn't know the ways of war, bloody, bloody, bloody. But think about book five. Think about the fighting pits. She has the exact same reaction in the fighting pits to seeing the violence. She's against it uh, in theory when she hears about it. And then when she is sort of backed into a corner and uh, agrees to open the fighting pits as a concession uh, to try to foster some level of peace in the city. She guts it out and goes and watches it, and she can't even take it. She's she can't even stomach it. So just think that's worth worth noting here. Uh, her this is like com- contrast that to Joffrey, who cuts open a pregnant cat just to like see what's inside, right? Like it's kind of the opposite. So her first Danny's first act of actual violence is, of course, defending herself from Viserys, which we should say finally, since he's been abusing her for years. He was still screaming. You do not command the dragon. Do you understand? I am the lord of the seven kingdoms. I will not hear orders from some... (laughs) His hand went under her vest, her fingers digging painfully into her breast. Do you hear me? Danny shoved him away, hard. Viserys stared at her. His eyelack lies incredulous. She had never defied him, never fought back. Rage twisted his features. He would hurt her now, and badly, she knew. Crack! the whip made a sound like thunder. And of course, that's when the Blood Rider emerges from the grass and chokes, strangles Viserys, and he gets humiliated and made the cart king. Uh, but point is, um, this is the first time that Danny has done anything. It's, it's a shove. And she's shoving Viserys back. So it's a defensive move here. And the second time we see, very similar, again, when she offers Viserys the Dothraki clothes with uh, Targ stuff on him, he, uh, you know, rejects them and gets abusive and, you know, grabs her. And so she grabs the, uh, the belt. And it says, it caught him full in the face. Viserys let go of her. Blood ran down his cheek where the edge of one of the medallions had sliced it open. You are the one who forgets himself, Danny said to him. Didn't you learn anything that day in the grass? Leave me now before I summon my cause to drag you out. And pray that Caldrago Drogo does not hear of this, or he will cut open your belly and feed you your own entrails. So here's the first time that Danny is talking like this, if you will. Now she hears this kind of talk from Viserys and other people around her. And so she is appropriating it for herself, essentially as a way of you know standing up and putting him in his place. And so there you go. I don't think Danny's really um Oh, I guess she's threatening that Cal Drogo will do that. Yeah, Cal Drogo would, would do that. That's that's that is a Drogo kind of a thing to do. Cut open your belly and feed you your own entrails. It's also very Shaga. Can't you see like Shaga and Drogo drinking some horns of ale together with like a translator? I can see that. Anyways, this is the moment uh, that her mercy and sympathy for Viserys finally dies. So this is the um the moment at the uh, at the feast when when uh i'm hopping around chapters a bunch the one that we just read was chapter three that was the no i'm sorry that was chapter four so the confrontation in the grass is chapter three and the one with the belt is chapter four or danny's fourth chapter in the case now jumping ahead this is um danny five and this is the one where viserys is threatening her with a sword at the feast right before he gets crowned and killed um Danny says, and this is basically the moment that her mercy and sympathy for Ceres breaks, all right? Tell him I want what I, Tell him I want what I bargained for, or I'm taking you back. You and the eggs both. He can keep his bloody foal. I'll cut the bastard out and leave it for him. The sword point pushed through her silks and pricked at her navel. The Ceres was weeping, she saw, weeping and laughing, both at the same time, this man who had once been her brother. So obviously, if we're talking about you know, Danny in violence that we got to talk about this scene. Danny doesn't commit the violence, but she basically, you know, she's part of it. She's she takes part in tricking Viserys to get him to lower his sword. Um, and so she is partially responsible for Viserys' death. And the cool thing about this is that Danny looks it, she watches it, she doesn't look away, and she faces the weight of what she has done. And this is a character trait of her. She never flinches from the consequences of her choices or tries to fool herself about them. And that is a very important thing to point out. So here's the quote. Viserys began to scream the high, wordless scream of the coward facing death. He kicked and twisted, whimpered like a dog, and wept like a child. But the Dothraki held him tight between them. So Jorah had made his way to Danny's side. He put a hand on her shoulder. Turn away, my princess, I beg you. No. She folded her arms across the swell of her belly protectively. At the last, Viserys looked at her. S- sister, please, Danny, tell them, make them, sweet sister. And, and she watches. So there it is. Um, uh, let's see. In Danny's sixth chapter of the Game of Thrones, we see her associate waking the dragon with protecting her children. And this is one of the defining aspects of her mother mice identity, of course. Just like Mother Nature. Or basically any ancient mother goddess, their wrath can be fierce when protecting their young. Jora is telling Danny about the wine cellar's assassination attempt having been directed by King Robert. And here's the passage She hugged herself protectively. And me, you said, only me? You and the child, Sir Jora said, grim. No, he cannot have my son. She would not weep, she decided. She would not shiver with fear. The usurper had woken the dragon now, she told herself, and her eyes went to the dragon's eggs, resting in their nest of dark velvet. The shifting lamplight limned their stony scales, and shimmering motes of jade and scarlet and gold swam in the air around them like courtiers around a king." So in the tradition of Mr. Miyagi's famous adage, karate for defense only, it's important to separate out, like I said, the instances of violence used for defense as opposed to offense. Um, again, going back to the comparison of uh, you know a, a soldier in war, there's a difference between killing the enemy and killing innocent people and and there's also uh, a difference in violence used for aggressive, you know aggression versus uh, protecting and defending. So those these are important fault lines to keep track of as we track Danny's relationship with violence. So Danny's seventh chapter opens with a vivid, Gory description of the aftermath of the battle between Drogo's khalasar and another khalasar, um, the village of the Lazarene, the Lambmen. Um, so it's like, oh, I guess, okay, I misread the sentence. Basically, two khalasars fight. Drogo's khalasar beats the other khalasar, and then they pillage uh, a village of the Lazarene. Something like that. Or one khalasar was pill- pillaging the village, and the other one came up and fought. But essentially, this scene opens with Danny walking through the carnage it's very gory it's very vivid there's i'm, I'm going to grab a paragraph but there's like four pages of it it says the women and children of ogos Kalasar walked with a sullen pride even in defeat and bondage they were slaves now but they seemed not to fear it it was different with the townsfolk danny pitied them she remembered what terror felt like mothers stumbled along with blank dead faces pulling sobbing children by the hand there were only a few men among them Cripples and cowards and grandfathers. So this feeling wars with her desire to make herself fierce and hard, which leads to her contemplating the, quote, cost of the Iron Throne. And this is such an important passage. Across the road, a girl no older than Danny was sobbing in a high, thin voice as a rider shoved her over a pile of corpses face down and thrust himself inside her. Other riders dismounted to take their turns. That was the sort of deliverance the Dothraki brought the landmen. I am the blood of the dragon, Daenerys Targaryen reminded herself as she turned her face away. She pressed her lips together and hardened her heart and rode on toward the gate. Most of Ogo's riders fled, Ser Jorah was saying. Still, there may be as many as 10,000 captives. Slaves, Danny thought. Khal Drogo would drive them downriver to one of the towns on Slaver's Bay. She wanted to cry, but she told herself that she must be strong. This is war. This is what it looks like. This is the price of the Iron Throne. So this is Danny trying to make herself something she's not, straight up. She actually does look away from the violence. Remember I just said she never does that? She tries to do it here, but only for a second. It lasts literally like three seconds. So next paragraph. Behind them, the girl being raped made a heart-rending sound, a long, sobbing wail, shout out, and a cry of agony and ecstasy, that went on and on and on. Danny's hand clenched hard around the reins, and she turned the silver's head. Make them stop, she commanded Sir Jora. So this is where, this is where it happens. This is the title picture of this live stream that I was using. It's it's Danny in this village. I, I believe this is really, uh, this is like just really important. So and yes, this stream is triggering as hell. So I do apologize. Um, this is obviously intent subject matter. I did not put a warning. Um, I did say we were discovering <laughs> Danny's The Game of Thrones book, which obviously um, you know, we're dealing with this. But thanks for watching and thanks for um, you know, being willing to go here and consider this material because it is dark. Uh, but this is this is who Danny is and this is where she comes from. And if we're gonna consider her character and what she does, then we've got to know, we've got to look at where she's gone. So I don't know. Maybe do something lighthearted after this uh, if you're feeling like this is pretty rough. So, thanks, guys. And we're going to keep going here. So, after basically, even after all the handmaidens, uh, Blood Riders, and Jora explained to Danny that this is Dothraki culture, this is how it works, she demands a change. She does not care. She wields her new power as Khaleesi to save other people and to play the mother role. And she says, I will not have her harmed, Danny said. I claim her. Do as I command. Or Cal Drogo will know the reason why. And again, I will point out that Danny is 14 here. So Jor remarks that Danny reminds him uh, of her brother, Rhaegar, not Viserys, which is interesting because it implies that sort of two sided dragon coin, if you will. You know, the idea that um, the existence of a dragon who protects other people is valid, it also exists instead of the idea of a dragon who abuses and terrorizes others. So I think this whole Rhaegar-Viserys dichotomy is, is you being used in the first book to show us that the dragon can be taken different ways. You know, in this moment of power, when Dany is using her power to protect people, um, Jorah says, hey, you're kind of like Rhaegar. So it just shows us that the dragon is, doesn't have to be Viserys, doesn't have to be the Mad King, and it doesn't have to be Magar or Magor the Cruel. So, um, you know, this is basically an an open question for Danny, how she's going to come down on this. I mean, that's that's the razor's edge that she's walking, right? So now this continues as they ride through the destroyed Lazarine town. Um, And uh, just to follow up on the comment uh, from the person who said, man, this is triggering, also says, it's rough, but so necessary to understand her character and actions. Absolutely important to include in your analysis. Right on. Yep, that's where I'm coming from. Um, It is, and maybe I'll add that to the description of the video you know, little heads up, like we're going there. So I hope you guys are happy with the way that we're handling it. I guess is the main thing that I will say. So here's Danny and she's considering, she's riding through the town here. It says they passed other women being raped each time. Danny reigned up, sent her cause to make an end of it and claimed the victim as a slave. And again, slave is, is the, is the way that she can claim them. But of course, She's, you know, claiming them as slaves to protect them. So Danny is already taking on a mother to orphans role here, and this only grows throughout the story. She's claiming them as her slaves, but really they're her children now, just like the refugees in Slavers Bay. Anybody that Danny claims as hers, in her mind, they become her children, and she then protects them like children. And so that's why I say, you know, kind of like a surrogate mother or... Just sort of a mother goddess type. So here's more of Danny expressing power and potential aggression in conjunction with defending her children um, in, this, in the same scene. So Jorah says, you cannot claim them all, child, the fourth time that they stopped while the warriors of her cause herded her new slaves behind her. I am Khaleesi, heir to the seven kingdoms, the blood of the dragon, Danny reminded him. It is not for you to tell me what I cannot do. Across the city, a building collapsed in a great gout of fire and smoke, and she heard distant screams and the wailing of frightened children. Cool last line in that passage there. It uses the, uh, the gout of smoke and fire and the screaming of, of frightened children to sort of highlight visually what we're just talking about. Danny is the blood of the dragon. She is a gout of smoke and fire, and she hears the screams of her frightened children, and she will not be balked, or stopped in protecting them. She will claim them all if she damn well pleases, and she'll use her dragons to do that. That's what she's saying here. Um, so, yeah, badass motherfucker is right. There I go again. Oh, well, forget it. F-bombs are plenty. Oh, man, I need a swear jar. We're going to have to get a swear jar to get me to stop dropping F-bombs on live streams. It's, we're going to need something. It's tough. Anyway, so this... Um, This culminates when she has to convince Drogo now that this is what's going to happen. She's going to protect these people, and they're not going to be given to the Dothraki as spoils of war. Uh, So Dany told him what she had done in his own tongue so the Kal would understand her better, her words simple and direct. When she was done, Drogo was frowning. This is the way of war. These women are our slaves now to do with as we please. It pleases me to hold them safe. Danny said, wondering if she had dared too much. If your warriors would mount these women, let them t- let them take them gently and keep them for wives. Give them places in the kalasar and let them bear you sons. Kotho was ever the crudest of the blood riders. It was he who laughed. Does the horse breed with the sheep? Something in his tone reminded her of a series. Danny turned on him angrily. The dragon feeds on horse and sheep alike. So again <laughs> dragon is full protect and it's I don't know it's, I mean it's right there she's she's making threats of draconic violence but again in defense of those she has chosen to protect and there it is and Danny's last chapter as she is waking from her long sleep actually let's pause there I've, I've got uh, before I go on I think I want to freelance here and talk about this a little bit. Um, this to me is the pivotal moment of a game of thrones. When I read back over it, I'd always thought about it as waking the dragon, right? Waking the, I mean, it's the climax of the book explosion of symbolism. It has the dragons. It's like the only magical thing that's happened since the others in the prologue. All right. So this is, I now, after reading this from a character point of view, it's very clear to me that this is actually the highlight of the book. This is the defining moment of this book for Danny. She is 14. She has just gained a little bit of power in the Khalasar. And what does she do? She uses it to protect people. And she overextends herself. She doesn't, like, just try to save a couple of people. She just, like, sees how far she can push it. She sits there and literally changes Dothraki culture on the fly she's arguing with these big strong warrior men i mean this is fierce this is like as fierce as it comes and what causes danny to do this it's protecting other people taking a moral stance she's saying basically no i'm not willing to accept the iron throne if this is how it comes I'm not willing to do that. Like, she sits there and realizes that's the bargain. You want the Kalisar? You want to retake Westeros? This is how we do it. And she says, this ain't how we do it. (laughs) Montel, not how we do it, you know? And it's worth pointing out that this doesn't necessarily ultimately work out perfectly. Like, one of the women she saves is Miriam Azdor. And Miriam Azdor makes the point to her like, oh, yeah, you saved me, but my village is burned. My way of life is gone. The boy I healed is now dead with his brain splatted out in the street. So take a look at what life is, you know, left when everything else is lost. And so that is definitely a lesson. And, you know, not every time you try to do the right thing does it work out. But what we're trying to do is look at 14-year-old Daenerys at the beginning of *The Game of Thrones here and see her character and to see what she's trying to do, what are the things that make her take a stance? What are the things that make her exercise her power? And it's very clear. Protecting people, standing up for herself, and then protecting people. And what's really cool about Danny protecting people is that it's actually tied into what she wants, her sense of home, her desire for the house of the red door. Basically what she's decided is, if I can't have that childhood, if I can't have that safe place, I'm actually going to give it to others. I'm going to extend safety and protection to as many people as I can because it's a thing that I didn't have. And to me, that is powerful and that is the defining element of Daenerys' character. So now tell me how she's going to take King's Landing and then burn her own citizens. It's not going to happen. It's not. So I don't know what else to say. You know, we've talked about uh, in the community, we have talked about ways in which something similar could happen. She's trying to take King's Landing. Wildfire gets set off. There's a lot of casualties, more casualties than she wants. But how is Danny going to react to that, guys? She's going to be horrified. Just like she is every time there is loss of innocent life. So I can see her being labeled as the Mad Queen after it goes sideways. I can see, a, a, you know, a lot of people dying at King's Landing, but she's not going to intentionally burn people. And this really, guys, this is just D&D being heavy-handed. Even going on their Mad Queen idea that they were going to have, it didn't need that turn. It didn't need her to become a killer like that. She simply could have gone too far trying to take King's Landing and been accepting of massive civilian casualties and then giving her sort of authoritarian speech. But what the thing about d and is they're clumsy. They wanted to make it very clear that she's the bad guy and deserves to be killed by John and John killing her is totally fine and okay. And so they had to turn Danny into a transparently evil Hitler villain. And guys... George Martin, that's just not what's happening. Like, it's just, yes, we're going to walk the line of how we use the dragons and what is an acceptable way to use violence. Yes, Danny is going to be a gray character and she's going to walk up to the brink and pull back from the brink and she considers if she's the mother of monsters and all that stuff. But it's going to be well done. It's going to make sense. And it's going to be consistent with all of this foreshadowing that we have just gone through as far as what Danny cares about and what her values are. So, let's climb off my soapbox. But I mean, that's that's kind of the point here. You know, looking at all this is considering how it makes sense. Like once you go through and you read all this stuff and then you think about the TV show again, it's especially jarring. Like these aren't even the same characters. So, (sighs) bad. Anyways, so now we're gonna go, we're gonna jump ahead to Danny's last chapter. And this is when she's waking from her um, long sleep after her miscarriage in the tent of Dancing Shadows. She's surveying the, the losses. The Kalisar is gone. Her baby is dead. Drogo's in a coma, et cetera, et cetera. And she hears about the fate of Aroa, who is that first uh, refugee girl that Danny tried to save from being raped in the village, the one that reminded her of Danny, the one that was her age. So here we see Danny swear violence. Eroa asked Danny, remembering the frightened child she had saved outside the city of the lamb Men. "'Mego seized her, who is Cal Jaco's blood rider now, said Jogo. He mounted her high and low and gave her to his Cal, and Jaco gave her to his other blood riders. They were six. When they were done with her, they cut her throat. It was her fate, Kalisi said Ego. If I look back, I am lost, Danny thought. It was a cruel fate, Danny said, yet not so cruel as Mago's will be. I promise you that by the old gods and the new, by the lamb god and the horse god and every god that lives, I swear it by the mother of mountains and the womb of the world. Before I am done with them, Mago and Kojako will plead for the mercy they showed Eroa. So again, we have Danny climbing on her imperial fire and blood sort of high horse, but what is she doing? She's swearing bloody violence against the people who harmed her children. So it's pretty straightforward, and it's it's consistent with Danny as a fearsome mother goddess figure whose wrath is aroused on behalf of her children. Now one does note that Danny is talking about vengeance here as opposed to pure protection. That is slightly different, of course, and that's a slippery slope that she'll have to navigate as the possessor of draconic justice, if you will. We see Danny wrestle with this dynamic again in Marine. When she orders the torture interrogation uh, to discover the killers of the Unsullied, and this is probably the worst—I'd say definitely—the worst thing that Danny has done in the five books is that that torture, because the people she's torturing are essentially innocent. They have information on potentially on the on the killers, but they are innocent. And I, I think she orders what the children to be tortured in front of the father so that he'll talk, which is pretty fucked up. Um, so you know not we're not here to whitewash definitely um, and you know that that is that is the slope here, you know, using violence to protect people uh but seeking out vengeance against people well i mean uh, the justice and vengeance is it's a very slippery slope, and Martin writes a lot about how, what the cost is on a person of seeking vengeance that's that's a very big theme, I think in a lot of um in a lot of these characters so this is this is kind of you know the punishment of plaza is another one um uh yeah and then they weren't like young children but they were the children of the wine cellar i believe um we're going to get into that scene when we do the dance with dragons one but yeah she ordered she ordered torture um essentially you know questioning them sharply like what does that mean that's you know that's that's torture so Uh, yeah it is what it is um but she's of course she's doing that to try to figure out who's killing all her unsullied who are her children so here we see that she's her protection of her children can cross the line into vengeance um and so that's something that we'll have to keep an eye on obviously uh but again ask yourself does it is there still some like is there some way in which her uh slaughtering the populace of king's landing could Could fit in as like vengeance taken too far? No, not really. No, it's not. Um, There's the, you know, if she, the general purpose of King's Landing is that they're going to be her people. Like if Danny equates King's Landing and the Red Keep as her long lost home and the people of Westeros as her subjects, then she will logically consider them to be her people to protect. And just as she's done with everyone that she's adopted or ruled over, she will use her dragons to protect them. So the idea of Danny killing her own people doesn't, that's not a slippery slope of justice turning to vengeance. You know, it's really not. Like one thing, uh, if she burns the red keep to like get Cersei and all her soldiers or something and gets aggressive with it, but yeah, no, slaughtering innocent people of King's Landing indiscriminately is not that's outside of the paradigm of this slippery slope that I'm talking about. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, enhanced interrogations—they do—they do do one of those in marine. So, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get there. We're gonna get there. So one thing about um, one thing about Danny uh, and heroism is that she is willing to self-sacrifice, right? The whole trick about the Azor Ahai story, as I've talked about, is that Azor Ahai is murdering someone in order to gain magical power, and then he's presented as the hero. And we've seen by reading the books that that is not what makes one a hero in Martin's mind, killing other people to to take power. That's the opposite of that. That's Euron, you know, Euron Crow's Eye. That's uh, Tywin. That's, you know, all the worst people in the books. So uh the heroes, what the heroes do, they put themselves on the line and they self sacrifice for other people and that is what Danny does and um there's there's more of it in the later books, uh, but there's a little bit of a seed of it that is in the uh in the first book so we're going to talk about the Danny Drogo stuff again, uh so just you know fair warning so we, obviously the Danny Drogo sex scene, the first one in particular on the marital uh, wedding night, is problematic because it is marital rape, like we talked about, uh, but it, it becomes consensual. And Danny's only 13. So the trope here that's that's being tread upon is the idea of a girl in a rape situation changing her mind, deciding that she likes it, which is a horrible, horrible trope, kind of like a sexual Stockholm syndrome. But you see this idea in the minds of of perverted men here and there and so this is not exactly what happens with danny and drogo but it's 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 sort of stepping it's like right next to that okay so this is why this plot line comes across poorly to a lot of people i don't know that maybe even george would write it quite the same way now um i don't know but it's definitely a little icky the way that she eventually they start off like i said in this in this marital rape situation and eventually they seem to love each other kind of it's like i said it's loaded it's 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 very icky it's very sticky uh but there is a point that we can make um you know stepping outside of the general commentary let's put ourselves in danny's position and observe something about her character okay so viserys has framed her ability to make marriage to drogo a success to please drogo as the key to his being able to retake the Seven Kingdoms for House Targaryen, right? Don't disappoint me. You know, do whatever Drogo says. I would let him do whatever he wants. As long as I get my army, you better not fuck it up. That's what Viserys is telling Danny all throughout the first couple chapters. So Danny has all this pressure on her. Basically, the Seven Kingdoms, House Targaryen, all of that stuff, the future of it is being put on her shoulders. She pleads with Viserys not to sell her to Drogo, But then, nevertheless, she doesn't run or balk before or during the wedding. She musters up unbelievable bravery and courage throughout this entire horrific experience, and we've been talking about it, and then into the very early traumatic stages of her marriage before they establish some rapport and before she gains power and before she learns how to ride and adjust and all that. So eventually, when she becomes ruler she maintains a sense that rulers must sacrifice themselves for their people. And that's basically what we see throughout her Marinese arc, where she's delaying her desire to go to Westeros, uh, you know, to try to rule, and she's locking up the dragons. So even after being sold into a kind of sexual slavery as a girl, you know, um, in Marine, she still chooses to have a loveless marriage with Hisdar for the greater good of the people. And this is yet another sacrifice of her body. So think about how difficult that is. Danny has been low-level sexual abused by Viserys. She's been treated like a piece of meat. Then she was sold into this marital rape situation. So she's had her body violated in all these ways. And yet, only like a year or two later, when she's in Marine, and she's now trying to keep people from killing each other, and she's trying to take care of the people that she now considers her subjects. She is willing to sacrifice her body again to his dar, essentially in order to make peace. And she's got to be like, if you think about the psychology there, that's got to be dredging up all of that trauma that she went through. And yet she still, still chooses to do it. So this is, again, this is, this is self-sacrifice. Danny doesn't hesitate and that's again it's a tough subject um and you know and all that but looking at it from danny's point of view she is trying she is willing to sacrifice herself in very significant and intimate ways to bring peace to people and that is that's that's what it takes to be a ruler you know john shows a lot of the same traits he's willing to sacrifice himself Put himself in harm's way, take on the burden of these hard decisions. And I think that's why John and Danny both have a lot of good leadership traits. Um, and so, related to that is the way that Danny understands her responsibility of rule. All right, so Jorah poses the question of what the common people actually want to her. And Danny realizes that Viserys doesn't have the qualities of a good ruler. So, Jorah snorted. Can you wake the dead, girl? Your brother Rhaegar was the last dragon, and he died on the trident. Viserys is less than the shadow of a snake. His blunt words startled her. It seemed as though all the things she had always believed were suddenly called into question. You, you, you swore him your sword. That I did, girl, Sir Jorah said. And if your brother is the shadow of a snake, what does that make his servants? His voice was bitter. He is still the true king. He is. Jorah pulled up his horse and looked at her. Truth now. Would you want to see Viserys sit a throne? Danny thought about that. He would not be a very good king, would he? There have been worse, but not many. The knight gave his heels to Mount and started off again. And remember, I just, I compared him to, uh, you know, Joffrey a minute ago. So that's, you know, no, he wouldn't have been a good king. He would have been another Joffrey. That's, that's a short way to say it. So Danny rode close beside him. Uh, Still, she said, the common people are waiting for him. Magister Illyrio says they are sewing dragon banners and praying for Viserys to return from across the narrow sea to free them. The common people pray for rain, healthy children, and a summer that never ends, Sir Jorah told her. It is no matter to them if the High Lords play their Game of Thrones, so long as they are left in peace. He gave a shrug. They never are. Danny rode along quietly for a time, working his words like a puzzle box. It went against everything Viserys had ever told her to think that the people could care so little whether a true king or usurper reigned over them. Yet the more she thought on Jorah's words, the more they rang of truth. And so she's, this is an important thing here. Like the idea of taking the throne for the glory of House Targaryen has nothing to do with taking care of anyone or providing the people rain or food or peace or a nice king's road like King Jaharis, the road-building dragon that's what the people care about. And so this is this is Jorah pointing out and yeah, Jorah is creepy, but Jorah is making a good point here. The people don't care about the high lords in the Game of Thrones. They care about surviving. They care about their homes and providing safety to their children. And Danny can relate to that. And so she considers it and she's like, "Yeah, you know, that's probably true." And so this is the kind of thing that's going to figure into her thinking. Like the show gave us a Danny that's basically just obsessed with retaking Westeros for the glory of House Targaryen or whatever. But she's, in the books, you can see that she's already learning this lesson. She already understands what it means to rule people. So, in the second and third books especially, we're going to see a lot more inner monologue where Danny is considering what it means to have dragons and what it means to retake Westeros and, you know, what the Dothraki will be like in Westeros and all that. But she's already thinking about the qualities of a good leader and realizing that uh you know the series ain't it and then at the end of the book danny wakes some dragons or something but that really doesn't have a lot to do with character uh except for you know courage and stuff and it's mostly an explosion of light and symbolism eh, which we've talked about many times so that's pretty much it for a game of thrones and danny's chapters and yeah i see you guys talking about sansa here there are a lot of sansa danny parallels Particularly, um, the ability to maintain kindness and mercy in the face of great hardship and trauma, um, and empathy, or maintain mercy, empathy, and kindness in the midst of trauma and violence, and that's actually one of the reasons why I thought that Danny and Sansa should actually get along a little better. Um, ironically, it became this horrible split in the fandom. Of course, you know, based on how show Sansa and show Danny and and their followers talk about them and stuff like that. But if you go back to the book and look at their characters, Danny and Sansa have a ton in common, um, and I think they should have at least one or two good conversations whenever they talk. So, on the other comp is Arya. Um, you know, people. Let's put it this way: the people who think the Mad Queen Danny ending makes sense are looking back over the books and pointing to anything where she's got violence going on and seeing, see, she's going to be. You know, the foreshadowing for her being a tyrant is there. I don't, I don't think it is, uh, personally. Uh, but if you compare <laughs> Danny to Arya, now you can see what that looks like, okay? Arya is having all the empathy burned out of her, and she doesn't have a ton of it to begin with. And it's really sad, but, I mean, Arya is a violent killer who doesn't feel bad about committing violence. She rolls in violence, revels in it, glorifies in it. And doesn't have a tiny bit of remorse about it at all, which is a different kind of tragedy. But, like, give Arya a dragon? Do you think Arya would burn a bunch of innocent people? Still no. Like, still no. And this is someone who's been trained to be a killer, and again, had all of the empathy burned out of them, um, completely disassociated from her home and all the things that would root her to kindness and stuff... And still, we believe Arya, like, probably wouldn't do that, you know? So, Danny is Dany, on the other hand, is maintaining and developing her empathy, even as she increases her power, even as she commits acts of violence, she does not lose sight of that uh, humanity. So, we will probably continue to compare Danny a little bit to Sansa and Arya as we go, because um, I think there are some good comparisons there. Uh, yeah, I mean, hey, I— I'd be okay with Arya on a dragon. Probably too servicey. I I don't think that's going to happen. Obviously no. But I would like to see Arya get loose at the twins. Yes. That's the sad thing about Arya, though, man. Like, you're rude for her to go kill all the Freys. But, like, do you really want a 12-year-old girl bathing herself in blood? Like, it's always really sad. So, anyways, I don't want to go off too much on Arya. But I would like to close this stream with talking about what I said at the beginning. Why Danny is my favorite character why I identify with Danny. It's not just because I jokingly refer to myself as a princess, because I'm picky and like to wash my hands a lot. Um, And that's the long-running joke between me and my barbarian friend who's uncouth like a barbarian. But uh, the thing I identify with Danny is the idea of home. I mentioned that I grew up in like a conservative Christian home. um, And even just saying conservative Christian isn't do it it justice. I've called it a cult-like substance at times it really was a case of a particular church that got warped, and some some really manipulative, awful people. But point is, my early home life was very violent emotionally. Um, my parents had a long, gory divorce and separation, and the church cult that we were um, involved in was passing on all kinds of crap to my parents, and you know that got passed down to us. And basically, I did not have a safe childhood. Um, I did not have a safe place. And maybe that's why I'm still <laughs> a little bit of a child. I don't know. You can see my Transformer collection here. But the point is, I really relate to Danny's sense of lost home and safety and her desire to find it. I just really get that. And very much like Danny, I have a very strong sense of injustice. Um, both against me and against anybody i mean if you follow my twitter feed you know i'm very political and most of my politics i'm posting about something that i perceive to be injustice that is the thing that gets me typing and sharing as if like somebody's oppressing someone else someone is getting you know the raw end of some deal we're getting screwed or shafted or whatever it is these are the things that arouse my ire and you can see that danny is is very similar she she comes. She was denied her own childhood and safety. Feels very unjust to have that taken from you, and so she wants to enact justice, and she wants to bring justice and home to other people. And I just, like I said, every part of that resonates with me. Um, so I, that's why I love Danny, and Amelia Clark doesn't doesn't uh, doesn't hurt. But <laughs> I read the books a full year and a half before the TV show ever came out, so before I was ever enraptured with the amazing goddess divinity that is Amelia Clark, uh, I was already a very big fan of Danny, just, just like I said for that, um, the, that sort of twofer of the way that she cares about justice and I just identifying with that sense of home. So that's it, guys. I think a lot of people identify with, with Danny for that reason. Or one of those one of those two reasons. So, I see some, see some remarks here in the chat about about that. People relating to that. So, yeah. Oh yes, no, I'm stronger now. I'm doing well. Gonna write a book about it. So, thank you, Mom, Pitbulls, and yes, I mean, a lot. It's a lot of our story. A lot of us have negative experiences with um, a religious home upbringing of of some kind. I had a more extreme one, uh, but. In any case, it's, that's probably a different topic to go into in a whole lot of detail. But we're at about two hours now, and I think we uh, we covered the bases here with uh, Game of Thrones. I will – let's, let's roll, hold on for a few more minutes. I'm going to give you guys a chance to fire up some comments and uh, get them read. Or if you have any questions or observations based on everything we've just gone through, I'll give you a chance to pipe those up since I have not been reading the stream a ton so far. Ariel says the whole inner dragon that wants to rise out of past drama is definitely relatable. Yeah, very, very phoenix-like, isn't it? Danny being imagining the dragon burning her to ash and bone, and then sort of being reborn, new and strong. I mean, it is—it's basically just a dragon phoenix, Um, and the phoenix is a really good symbol for people who've been through trouble, and it's one that a lot of people use. So that's pretty awesome. Good observation. Uh, yeah, uh, so Royal Chief Architect. Yeah, we were two hours in, so I'm going to wrap up the stream, but it's it'll be right there for you on YouTube to go back and watch on the rewatch. Yeah, one thing. Um, so Mama Pitbull says I think Danny is way more like Alicent than any Mad Targaryen, and it breaks my heart that the D and D forgot that at the end. Yeah, totally, I agree. Um, Danny is a very smart uh, player of the game. I think there are some good Alicent parallels. And speaking of Alicent and Jhaerys, uh so the famous, we're going to talk about Quave a lot more in in the future ones because Quave is a very one sided influence, let's say, on Danny's mindset. Quave at the in the last Danny chapter of A Dance with Dragons, she's wandering around in the Dothraki Sea, she's eating the green berries and she's starving and she's hallucinating. Uh, Quave is speaking to her through the grass and through the stars, and she eventually says, "You know, dragons don't plant trees." Right. Ooh, somebody's offering me a thirty-eight million dollars to do a series on Jaharis and Alisan. Cool. Uh, let's talk. Uh, I'll give you my bank account, and as soon as that, or that's actually PayPal me slash Mythical Astronomy. Uh, yeah, that's how you do that. And uh, yes, I'll give you as many episodes as you want. We'll we'll do symbolism for money, and also character analysis. Uh, the point is, dragons don't plant trees, right? It's this line that Quave gives. Like, remember who you are, Daenerys. The dragons know. Dragons don't plant trees. You're supposed to bite things and burn things, right? Well, of course, Danny actually does plant trees in Marine. She plants olive trees. And even though it's going to take 30 years for them to produce and be useful, it's the symbolism that counts. She's planting trees. Planting trees means building. It means building uh, for the future. If you're planting a tree, this is a place that's going to give you shade and food and nourishment it's going to hold the hillside together with its little root fibers trees are representative of building nourishment growth and 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 safety too a tree is is a kind of a home and a shelter so do dragons plant trees yes they do dragons also build the king's road and uh that's kind of like planting trees in a sense because again if you look at planting trees as providing for the people safety security nourishment you know the king's road is a is a great thing for westeros um unlike the valeria roads the valerian roads which were built to uh, facilitate conquest of essos the king's road is really more about commerce and safe travel through westeros and it's a great feature and guess who builds it a dragon Jaehaerys. so and he did all kinds of uh, public works him and Alysanne. Basically, had ninety years of building up Westeros into a country before Jaehaerys. It really wasn't a country. Like Jaehaerys is the one that that started unifying it. Um, you know, setting aside Dorne. He, like I said, building infrastructure, making it a cohesive country. That was that was Jaehaerys. So, so yeah, the the idea that dragons can only be burning, consuming monsters is not is not the case. It's that's the Viserys side of the dragon coin. Is also the Rhaegar Jaehaerys. Alisan, on and on and on side of the coin as well. So, as it turns out, people can be good and bad. Surprise, surprise. What does Quaid want to hold Danny? What are her motivations? Yeah, we're going to get into that. Um, Quaid is definitely encouraging Danny to be, you know, a violent kind of dragon. Um, I think that what Quaid cares about is the others. And so, what Quaid is trying to do is turn Danny into a dragon warrior. To defeat the others. The problem with that is that if you only think about Danny's ability to do violence with her dragons and don't consider her humanity, then you're going to turn Danny into a monster. Like that's what Quaid would do trying to make Danny into this dragon lord is maybe erase her humanity and we'd get a monster. And so Quaid is only like a very one sided influence. She only cares about Danny's ability. To fight the others. I think. I mean, this is my guess. Every time everything that Quave talks about is like be a dragon, fight the others. Like that's kind of what she's pushing her towards, which is which is kind of good because we do need to fight the others, and that is what Danny's dragons are for, quote unquote, I think. Um, however, like I said, I don't think Quave maybe cares about Danny's humanity and and she's presenting a one-sided message, which is dragons don't plant trees. Well, dragons do. And we need to defeat the others, but we also need Danny not to kill everyone in King's Landing. <laughs> so, like, we need her to maintain her humanity. Um, and so it's gonna be interesting to watch her various counselors and the influence of Quave and how Danny deals with it because Danny kind of goes back and forth with Quave's advice, she considers it, but she doesn't give herself over to it fully. So we're gonna have to get into that. Um, but that is that is uh yeah. Uh, of course, Alicia Kingston is mentioning the uh, if Quaithe is Alyssa Farman theory, which I love, um, then we might have some more personal motivations because then Quaithe would have ties to Danny's dragon's eggs that she hatched and the Danny herself. They'd be related. Um, maybe Quaithe cares about House Targaryen. I doubt it. I don't think so. I think she's probably past that if she ever did, if she was uh, that person. Um, I guess Alyssa Farman wouldn't give a shit about Targaryen, would she? No, she's not actually a Targaryen. So, yeah, sorry, I just got confused. But um, I think uh, there is room for some more interesting motivations. But to me, the thing that makes sense roughly is that Quaid is concerned with the others and thinks that Danny needs to fully embrace her dragonness to fight the others. But I think that is ignoring Danny's humanity, essentially, and just trying to use her as a tool. And Danny is a person not just a tool with dragons. So, or I guess you'd say the dragons are the tool. So she's a person with a tool that's important to use, but she's also a person uh, that, that we like. So there you go. Any last comments before we wrap this one up? Yeah, um, Baldabard points out that the house of the Red Door has a lot of childbirth, birth canal symbolism. It definitely does. And we see that Danny's um, her identity is strongly wrapped up in being a mother and even though her actual child dies, poor old Rego, poor, poor one out for Rego, um, she thinks of the dragons as her children, but more importantly, she thinks of everybody that she protects as her children. Um, so the mother identity is really important. The idea of the house with the red door being safety, it's like, you can almost see how that metaphor serves as you know the house of the red door is safety, but to the extent that it represents the reproduction process, Danny is providing safety to her children, so it's like the children live inside the house with the red door. It's the safety that Danny can provide. So, I think I was mixing two metaphors in a slightly awkward way there, but hopefully, you guys got the idea. <clears throat> I think I might have just said something funny. Anyways, moving right along. All right, this has been a good stream. Thank you, Tolkis. Glad you enjoyed it. A little something different, like I said, not uh, not symbolism based, but I you can tell I care about this. I feel strongly about this. And I had to plant my flag on this one. I am. Oh, yes, this is a good way to close. Good news, guys. Um, from the best that we can tell from D&D's interview, the Mad Queen Danny and the John killing Danny thing seems to be a DD invention. Okay. So, in a recent interview, there's two parts of the interview where D&D talk about the ending. One time they say, Okay, so we talked. Last time we talked to George was after season three, and he told us about King Brand. And we we're all, oh, King Brand! And that was the third OMG moment that they have talked about forever. King Brand. George told us about that, and they mentioned, you know, George's. It's uh, it's it's from the DVD commentary. Ball the Bard is saying, um, I think it was reprinted in a in a magazine article, which is why I was calling it an interview. But in any case, confirmed fact, they did say this. They said on one hand. Uh, that the King brand was George's idea and it flipped their wigs when he gave it to them. Uh, and then in the same uh, interview, they say we came up with the John and Danny thing after season three. So, I mean, I, they might be basing the John and Danny thing on whatever George told them about John and Danny. Um, some people think that actually what they did is they took Cersei killing or Jamie killing Cersei and and maybe made that John and Danny when you, we actually could see, you know, Jamie stabs Cersei before they both die together. That would make a lot more sense, right? Wouldn't it? Because um, the whole Valonqar prophecy and and all that stuff. Um, they're both going to die together. It just won't be as happy and, and poetic as it is in not poetic, but it's kind of whitewashed in the show. I guess is what I'm saying. Um, anyways, uh, completely lost my train of thought there. Definitely time to wrap up the stream. Uh, point being, what was my point? Yes, they came up with, they came, they they say we came up with the John and Danny thing, and they're always the John and Danny thing went over poorly, right? And D and D are always very quick to point to George and pass the buck, like, oh no, uh, yeah, George killed Hodor. That was uh, George did that, and burning Shireen. Oh yeah, we were really shocked when George told us about burning Shireen. Yeah, it was, it was, uh. like they they're very quick to pass the buck to George on the stuff that doesn't go over very well. So the fact that they said, George thought of King Bran, we thought of the John and Danny thing, it's not concrete, but to me that that definitely goes a long way to indicating that the, that, that Mad Queen ending is not going to be very similar in the books than it is to the show. And if I could be slightly obnoxious for just a second, I would like to say that everyone who's going around and saying, the endings are going to be the same, and everyone just needs to accept it. And you're going to be wrong, and you're going to look like a big idiot once the books come out. And that's my word. So, with that, I'll close the stream. Thank you all for coming. Follow me on Twitter, and I'm at the Dragon LML. Join my Patreons, like and subscribe, share the video. That's actually the best thing you can do, it's free. Share the video, and uh, there you go. Long minutes.